All right, ladies and gentlemen, how's it going? Welcome to Liberty After Dark. I am your host, Christian Moore, and today we have with us once again the venerable Patrick Smith. How's it going? You'll never not be venerable to me. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so venerable. I, it took me a minute to respond. Oh. I'm good, man. How are you? Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, I am I'm looking doing forward fantastic. to another one of our chats. Oh, yes. I think this one will be fun, too. Um, this is a, a really critical episode as far as they're all critical. I wouldn't I wouldn't add it to this list of season three if it was, if I didn't think it was something really important to understand on the quest of uh, explaining voluntarism from top to bottom. And uh, so today we're talking about logic, essentially. We're going to be talking about uh, applied, and uh, we're going to also be talking about, well, logic in all of its forms, formal as well. And so we're going to be covering a, a few topics, including universalizability, reciprocity, you know, what makes an argument an argument, and the, rule, the three laws of logic. Most of this stuff will be really quick to go over, but it's important stuff to go over. And then hopefully we'll have some good discussion throughout the way. But... Uh, I should have started all of this off with asking, uh, how are you doing and how have things been since the last episode in the time you were on? Oh, it's good, man. You know, we had our outdoor adventure that was uh, refreshing, even though it was a little challenging. And yes. um, I, you were definitely in the best of shape of the three of us. <laughs> yeah, we, we were struggling. I was but, still uh, sucking no, it was wind, good. So. <laughs> yeah, for those of you who don't know. No, it was good. We went on a uh, on a uh, an excursion, we'll call it, into the the deep wilderness, and uh, we had ourselves a good time. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, hopefully, we'll get to do it again here before too long. Uh, make some time for it. Okay, um, I guess we'll go ahead and just jump straight in. Thanks for everybody who's starting to show up. Um, I know I kind of probably could have waited a little bit longer before we started up on the music, but you guys are here now. That's what matters. And if you miss any of this, you can always check it back on the recording later. Uh, so logic, Patrick, why don't you go ahead and give me just your, your little intro. Why is logic important for un understanding <laughs> voluntarism or philosophy? <laughs> wow. Um, so logic is uh, a systematic way of looking at reality, of of seeking consistencies in the things that we observe and experience around us. Why is logic important? Um, it is the difference between our our feelings, which are so frequently wrong, um, our gut reactions, our gut instincts, which can be overreactive or underreactive or absent when they need to be there or way too in our faces when we don't need them there. Um, it is a rigorous way of taking the consistency that we see in the world and the universe around us and reflecting that back on the universe to better understand the universe itself. Um, it is the foundation of reason. It is the foundation of the scientific method. It is the foundation uh, upon which all knowledge is built. So, you know, just a light topic for us today. <laughs> yeah, I kind of, I, I sent that way, uh, that question your way, knowing exactly that this is a, an issue of best put monumental importance. Um, I did the state of nature first. Part of me really wanted to do logic first, but I felt like it was... It was almost more important to establish the state of nature because that's 
almost a more hard, harder pill to swallow. So if you can get through that, we can get into the logic and then everything else follows immediately after. But some of the things we talked about in that last episode are going to be coming up today, uh, so, such as like the idea of uh, non-arbitrariness or minimizing as much arbitrariness as possible in a system. And uh, a, probably the best place to start this entire discussion, in my opinion, is with the three laws of logic. So, Patrick, do you want to tell them about the three laws of logic? The three laws. I'm going to Google them real quick. Yeah. Uh, they go by different names. The three laws of logic would be identity, non-contradiction, and uh, excluded middle. And um, this sounds like some really super esoteric set of things that only maybe a math nerd might be familiar with. But um, it's way simpler than that. It's way more obvious than that. And it better be obvious because it's the fundamental laws. It is the thing that everything else is built on top of. So uh, the law of identity is A equals A. It's such a foundational thing to just say A equals A that I put it on a T-shirt in my disenthrall store. <laughs> and, and I'm the only one that's ever bought one. And I don't care. I wear my A equals A shirt. And, and uh, I'm the biggest nerd wherever I go. Um, what does that mean? It means that um, a thing equals itself. Well, what does that mean? It means that if you look at an object and you look at the object again, it's still the object unless something has acted on it or changed it in some way. It, um, it speaks to the fundamental consistency of the universe that I was talking about earlier. It's that things work in a way according to a set of objective or deterministic rules. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it is the fundamental idea that, you know, magic doesn't exist in that um, the natural world functions in a deterministic, predictable way that um, you know, we can look at, we can derive rules from, and then use those rules to predict how the universe and the objects in it will work in the future. Uh, without that assumption, which I think is equally important to discuss, without uh, assuming that A equals A, and that the universe will work the same tomorrow as it is right now, and the way it worked yesterday, uh, every single thing becomes unknowable. Every single piece of wisdom, knowledge, scientific fact, evidence, scientific study, philosophy, literally everything just melts into a puddle on the ground uh, because it's all held up. But this is the cornerstone. This is the arch that what do they call the stone, uh, the, the stone in the top of an arch that kind of holds the arch together. It is the key. Keystones for building, but it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like it is at the core of everything. Uh, do you want me to continue, or do you have something to say on that? Uh, no, I mean, I think that's great, uh, especially as a good introduction. I usually, you know, for people who, like you said originally, it sounds super complicated, but these three laws are really just stupid simple. Like, it is essentially, this wallet is this wallet, and it will be this wallet until it is no longer this wallet. That's essentially the easiest way to think about the law of identity. Uh, the next one, for the law of non-contradiction, is that something cannot both be itself and not itself. So this wallet cannot both be a wallet and a giraffe is one way of thinking about it. Or if you want to put it in a formal, logical way, you A cannot equal A and not A at the same time. Uh, that is inherently a contradiction. And if those things were to be possible, then just as with the law of identity, literally anything could be possible. 
Um, if, if things could be things that they are and are not, then everything is everything, and words have no meaning, nothing makes sense, everything breaks apart. Uh, do you want to go ahead and talk about the exclusive middle? Or excluded middle? Sorry. It's a uh, non-contradiction also is uh, kind of an expression of the law of identity. It's uh, it's Ayn Rand's favorite law, probably. Uh, you know, she was <laughs> famous. She's renowned for saying something that's very true, that contradictions do not exist in reality. And that is just a, a restating of the law of non-contradiction. If you find, if you come across a contradiction, you can rest assured that 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 contradiction that you think you see in reality is actually something to do with a misperception, a misunderstanding. Um, your senses are wrong. Your measurements are wrong. Your method was wrong. Something besides reality is amiss, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which was part of the. Well, I mean, I'm digressing now, but it was part of the challenge when they started getting into quantum um, quantum theory, which appeared to present some contradictions in reality. But anyway, that's a digression. Well, it shows that. Um, like you were saying, it shows that if there is a contradiction presented, it's in the case of this, it was that our systems that we had developed to explain physical reality in a scientific way weren't complete. They were missing information that was required to understand the quantum realm and still are to a great extent, but we work towards that every year. The law of excluded middle. Um, if we were going to express it like a math nerd, it would be, it would be something like either A or not a but nothing in between so uh, a premise would either be true or not true not true ish or sort of true or um uh, what what what's a good practical example it's either raining or it's not raining it can't half rain for example um why don't you take it from there yeah but what about drizzling patrick that's not raining. <laughs> I get these. So this is a great example. The 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 go to example as far as like in education is the rain example. It's a very good one to bring up because you either step outside and it's raining or it's not raining. There's there's no in between. And we'll call it drizzle rain for this. Uh, but this is kind of like you were saying about how the law of non-contradiction is built out of the law of identity. The law of the exclusive middle is an application of the law of identity and the law of non-contradiction at the same time. So, and believe it or not, this is actually the newest of the three laws. This wasn't even a thing for until, oh, just about 1700 years ago at this point. So uh, it was always kind of intuited. A lot of this stuff can be intuited. A lot of people operate off of these principles, whether or not they realize it, just because that's the way reality works. That's why they're so important. And the, the law of the excluded middle sounds the most uh, esoteric, but is also probably the easiest to explain as well. It, it either is something it cannot be in between like is and is not is the best way of thinking about it. If something is to exist or is to not exist, it has to be one of those. It can't be in some weird superposition of not existing unless you go into quantum physics, but that again, it either exists or not exists. We just don't know which. So <laughs> yeah, this is right from Aristotle. If, uh, if my reading is true, um, the, these, these laws of thought is, I think, closer to what Aristotle called them, but uh, some people call them the laws of reason, the first principles of reality. I usually call them first principles, but you know, that's probably, it, it, people argue over what you call these. Things. Yeah. <laughs> what yeah. do you call them? Uh, I usually call them the rules or the laws of, of logic. Um, one of the two, I feel like the three rules of logic just really rolls off the tongue. 
uh, and it, I think it helps frame it in a way that is more approachable than saying like the three axioms of reason or something, you know, whatever boisterous name you want to put onto it. Um, but really what it comes are down we, to, are we addressing solipsism here? Um, we, I was going to briefly mention a little bit of stuff on the end, uh, about incompleteness and solipsism, but, uh, we could go ahead and bite that bullet now if you would like to, um, maybe introduce it and then maybe you can tackle it maybe at the end if we have time, but you know, right. it bears mentioning be because like a lot of the other things we talk about, we talk about, um, you have to show evidence for your premises, uh, to, to call them, uh, sound. Well, it bears mentioning sort of retroactively applying the same rules that we'd re we would require of other arguments on these first principles too, right? And that's where the solipsists, you know, think they have the entire universe beat when they say, well, where's your... They, they would say something like, A equals A is an assumption, nothing more. Uh, and the best evidence anybody could come up for with, uh, to evidence A equals A, the consistency of the universe, the way that things continue to work how they've always worked is, you know, the past history, historical record of things always having worked the same way. Gra the, the gravitational constant is the same every single time we've tested it, given the, the context of the planet Earth and an elevation, etc. Um, and then they would reply by saying something like, well, the fact that something has worked that way in the past does not logically guarantee that tomorrow when you wake up, the gravitational constant will still be the same. Therefore, your law is sort of just an arbitrary assumption that, um, you know, maybe it's a good rule of thumb, but, you know, you can't just base every other single argument all the way to, you know, coercion is immoral and the government shouldn't exist, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> you're basing all of that on quicksand on a, on a simple assumption. You know, that's usually I'm, this is the last time I ever want to role play a solipsist, but um, what do you, what do you have to say to that? Oh, you do a great job at it. Uh, so for anybody who doesn't know, solipsism is essentially the eternal skeptic. It's uh, Descartesian in nature. I believe he was the first person. I don't believe he coined the term solipsism. I could be wrong on that, but he is what people consider to be one of the first true solipsists. Um, and it is this eternal skepticism that leads to the kind of uh, observations that you were talking about. Not to say that they are necessarily incorrect. Now, I am no trained individual in the refutation of solipsism, but... They do make an interesting epistemological appeal, which is that nothing can be known for certain unless everything is known for certain is essentially what the claim comes down to. And there is a degree of factualness to that. And we can see this by examining science, right? So science is a constantly evolving and uh, self-improving process based off of the discovery of new information. And so as right as people believed they understood light 200 years ago. Nowadays, we have a completely different understanding of what a photon is, how it works, what it does, how it interacts with things. And this has completely changed the way that we view the entire thing based off of the observation of new information. And you could easily say that since we still don't know everything there is to know about the universe, our understanding of light today is potentially just as wrong as it was 200 years ago. We just haven't figured that out yet. And when addressing, from an ethical perspective, when addressing an eternal skeptic, we, there's a few places where 
individuals can start to run into bumps because epistemology, for those of you who don't know or, or couldn't tell yet, is a, can get to be a very tangled uh, web, I think is a good way of putting it and something you could really get mired down into. Uh, and it, it comes down to the fact that at some level, there is a inherent acceptance of what's the word I'm looking for here? Cause I don't want to say like a resignment to reality because that's uh, essentially just begging the question. Um, how do you know reality is? Oh, because reality is right. <laughs> um, it, it's a difficult process to like, if I was to debate a solipsis on this point, which I uh, forgive me for fumbling over myself, but I hadn't entirely uh, thought through this position before yeah. coming on here, but. Yeah, I, I sprung the topic on you. I just figured it was the moment to do so because we were talking. These are the fundamental laws, uh, the fundamental laws of logic that a solipsist would take issue with. Undermining literally everything, yes. including the language they're using to talk to you with, you know, so it's <laughs> sort of a, it's almost self-contradictory to reject these three laws and talk to someone. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I, I would just define solipsism as um, the theory that me, I am the only thing that I can prove that exists yeah. because I am the only thing that, you know, I experience myself. All of your other people, I can't prove that you exist. Yeah, I could be a brain, yeah, brain in a vat. I could be in the matrix, you know, anything like that. Um, and I think you put me onto this actually as maybe the best counter argument against solipsism, or maybe it was Matt Dillahunty, but, um, and this is my example of the idea I think I got from him, but. It was, uh, I remember when I was in high school and the Metallica Black album came out and all of my friends went out and bought the Metallica Black album and we all got in our cars separately in our own cars and we all listened to the Metallica Black album. Now, for solipsism to be true and for me to be the only one that existed, that means that my, my intelligence, my creativity, my imagination has to be able to write Metallica Black albums on the fly. And all the other people in their cars listening to the same album and, and hearing the same lyrics and singing along when we're done listening, we all get together and they're repeating back lyrics. Maybe I only listened to the first half of the album and they repeat back the, the lyrics to the second half. And sure enough, I go back and I listen later and up. Oh, yeah, they were right. Those are the so my my imagination, my intelligence has to become sort of omniscient. And I, I invented every song I've ever heard. I created every scientific discovery I've ever seen Elon Musk even think about doing like it's all me, baby. Uh, and uh, that that's kind of the best. Anyway, we're I did. I unintentionally <laughs> diverted us into a big digression into solipsism. But um, no, I mean, that's how like, fundamental these these laws are is these are this is important stuff. Either you're a brain in a vat or the universe is consistent. Pick one. Now that you've picked one, let's move on with our lives. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I usually I've brought it up in quite a few of my videos. I call it the epistemological unknowable just because I feel like that's uh, an easier way of selling it to, or letting somebody know what I'm talking about rather than just saying solipsism. But, you know, th there is this level of, of godlike completeness that your mind would have to have to generate this infinite reality of con uh, endless creation and, and uh, opportunities and experiences that is uh, almost a burden in itself that, again, you could never demonstrate as a solipsist you were capable of doing other than the fact that you experience it. So it's difficult. It's uh, almost circular at that point. 
which makes it very difficult to have any sort of uh, progression on the idea. So uh, it is it is very much a topic that is easy to get mired down on, but uh, you which right. I have led us straight into. So I apologize. <laughs> no, it's fine. You were you were correct in bringing it up. This would probably be a better time uh, just so that we could go ahead and address it, have it out there and then uh, let everybody do with that as they will. If there are any solipsists in the chat, go ahead and press F for our very sophisticated brain jars that are allowing us to, or brains and jars that are bringing this podcast to you to talk about why you aren't in fact a solipsist. But if a solipsist is listening to this, they need to be asking themselves why they're saying stupid stuff to themselves. <laughs> very, very true question because they're the ones who are, are coming up with these counter arguments. So, you know, yeah, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so we've talked about this a little bit already, but what, what you've probably noticed from all this, and I think probably the first thing uh, that would be good now that we've introduced the ideas, is that there is, an, there is a required consistency to the rules of logic. There's an required, required consistency to the application of logic, so both formal and applied logic require consistency. And this comes into very obvious detail whenever we look at like argumentative structure and for an argument to be what one might call good in this case in a logical sense it needs to be both valid and sound and just for anybody who doesn't know for an argument to be valid its premises or its conclusion must be derived from its premises and for it to be sound its conclusion must reflect reality and when you combine these two things together, you have an argument that is both valid and sound, which in a logical context is a good argument. Um, Patrick, do you have anything to add on, on that as far as argumentative structure? No, I mean, that's the, that's the summary. Uh, it, it has to have logical consistency. And all that means is, is it has to not violate A equals A, you know, non-contradiction, exclude or middle. It has to have consistency. I mean, it has to be valid and it has to match reality. It means you have to have evidence to back up your assertions. That makes, that's what we call soundness. And I think I just repeated what you said in a different way, but hopefully that helps if anybody didn't get it. Exactly. Uh, another super. So whenever you hear someone bring up something and we'll get into a little little bit into applied logic here, just just for a moment before we move back into some other topics. When you hear people talk about fallacies, they're violating one of these parts of an argument. It's either unsound or the conclusion can't be drawn from its premises. And if it's unsound, it's really easy to determine whether or not it's unsound. It says my dog is a giraffe. Well, it's very obviously not a giraffe. And, and actually, it's not technically an argument, but you get what I'm getting at. The conclusion is, is not sound. Um, or if you were to say uh, it is wet outside, therefore it is raining, right? Just because it's wet outside, it does not have to be raining. Somebody could have knocked over a bucket. Somebody could be watering the lawn, whatever it may be. There are plenty of other explanations for why it could be wet outside. So that would not be a sound argument. So going into all of this, that it, it's super important to understand for any sort of argument that you come up against. So like a, uh, what's a good example of a fallacy that could be demonstrated easily. You have one off the top of your head. <laughs> um, I call it bitch posting. No, <laughs> that's a bad example. <laughs> it, it's what happens on Twitter. It is the Twitter fallacy. It is where people, because the messages are so short on Twitter and you can't really express yourself accurately. People will take the short messages they see from you, project onto those short messages what they think you mean, 
and then tell you you're wrong and call you names. Um, so you'll say something in a short, well, this is a bad example of a fallacy, but you'll say something in short form. They will project onto the, your short form words, your bumper sticker words, the worst possible interpretation of those words. Um, ascribe culpability for that worst, terrible interpretation. You know, you want to kill babies because you're a libertarian or whatever. And, uh, and um, then they'll hit you as if you actually held those positions. Why is that a fallacy? Well, it's because they are addressing a position you don't hold or that you don't espouse. Another word for this is a straw man, which everyone has heard. It's probably the most popular, most well heard of <laughs> fallacy. Oh, you're straw manning me. In fact, most people might not even know that straw man is actually the formal name of a fallacy called the straw man fallacy. Uh, it's not just a nickname for when people are, are arguing past each other. No, no, no. It's actually a logical flaw that makes a logical proof invalid. Uh, and that's where it got its start. So I call it bitch posting. <laughs> that's a very good name for it, actually. I'll have to maybe steal that one. Uh, and this applies with consistency as well, even in that example, because it, it breaks the logical line of the conversation whenever someone starts straw manning. Uh, if, if a conversation is A to B to C to D in an effort to find the truth Z, we'll say, uh, once you start putting in numbers, when someone hands you a D and you give them a seven, it throws off the entire train of the conversation. Uh, maybe that's a bit of an abstract way of looking at it, but you could also see this in just another form of applying consistency to the way we use logic. Uh, so... Now that we've kind of established this and we've kind of shown how formal logic a little bit interacts with applied logic, let's go ahead and start talking about some more direct principles that align themselves with voluntarism specifically. And the first one... Can I, I say think, one more thing? Oh, yeah, go can, ahead. Can I say one more thing? Just talking about logical consistency, uh, valid arguments, and conformity to reality, soundness. These are the two components of a valid argument or a valid logical proof. It's also the best definition of what is true. So when you're trying to figure out what is true, what is truth, what should your standard be for calling something true? It should have both of those components. It should be consistently valid and it should be sound and match reality with evidence. Those are the two components for what should make something in your mind true. Uh, most people don't think about this, and I, I did a rant on it on my show recently with you, actually, yeah. where I uh, went went into the fact that I want people to start thinking about this stuff so they have standards, so that like if you're going to call something true, make sure you can back that up with a consistent argument that is backed up by evidence. All right, please continue. No, I, that's great. Uh, definitely 100%. Anything that is you know logically consistent and reflects reality, like you said, I'm going to reiterate what you said. That is a great definition for what is true. What else could be the definition for true is, I think, a good way of approaching uh, anybody who would dissent to that. There is what I wanted to move on to is is back to the application of voluntarist philosophy is, I think, probably the best place to start because it leads directly into our next topic, which would be the idea of universalizability. So, Patrick, would you like to explain to the audience what universalizability is? Uh, when it comes to moral philosophy? Yes. Yeah. 
So um, if we were to try, let me let me describe why it's important first. So if we were to try and describe a moral rule and this moral, like we we would say something like it is evil to drink beer on Sunday in South Texas uh, as long as the sheriff is in his office. The more qualifiers I put on that moral rule, the more silly and absurd anyone would think it is. Now, this isn't an argument that I've just made, but I'm trying to illustrate uh, because it's an appeal to absurdity, right? Which is not an argument. It's a fallacy. I understand. I'm just trying to I'm just trying to illustrate like when you when you start narrow, when you start making um, a moral rule function in a smaller and smaller scenario and a more specific, arbitrary, nonspecific uh, or specific scenario, less um, useful it is, the more ability for it to conflict with other moral rules you get from it. Um, so maybe there's another rule that says it's good to drink beer uh, uh, on a Sunday in South Texas uh, after the sheriff has left his office. Well, what if what if he's got one foot in and one foot out? Well, now we have two competing moral rules and somebody's either evil and they should be stopped by force or they're not evil and they should be let go free. Right. But we've got this weird gray area where, you know, where a person can exist with the sheriff's foot inside and out. Anyway, this is just an example to show um, the the idea of universalizability, which is to say that um, the best moral rules. um are The ones that are usable and that function and that apply to all times, all places, uh, between all people, with no distinctions uh, on any of these temporal things. Like, it, it, like it's not, it's never, it's not, you couldn't say it's evil for Dave to kill somebody, but Jane, oh, she gets to kill people. Well, that's not a universalizable rule of murder. That's not a moral rule that's universalizable because one person gets to do something that another person doesn't. Oh, the police gets to shoot dogs all day long, but you know, you, if you went to your neighbor's house and shot a dog, well, you don't get to do that. You're a criminal now. Okay, well, hold on. Now we've got a different moral rule for two different humans. Now we've left the realm of universalizability and we're back into just sort of might makes right what I say goes because I say so, which is the express opposite of a moral philosophy. Uh, how did I do on that? That was pretty good. Uh, it turns out, okay. plot twist, I actually uh, uh -oh. had exactly one reason why I put the state of nature before this, and it was because of this topic. And I'm going to give the Hobbesian interpretation, or I guess we could just call it the voluntarist interpretation off of the state of nature at this point for universalizability. And that is, if you remember to the last episode, we established that there are no natural-born tyrants. Nobody is born with some god-king authority over the rest of man. And if we are to logically apply this, it therefore means that any sort of rule that we were to apply to the group must be done so equally, we shall say, or universalizably. In order to derive some sort of logically based claim that has a preference towards one specific character, or in this case, we'll just say human over another, it would require one of them to have inherent properties over another that do not exist in the state of nature. So again, it would require a natural born tyrant to say, let's say Jane is the natural born tyrant. Jane can murder because they are the natural born tyrant. They have this higher moral authority over the rest of us that we don't have, but everybody else, they can't do it. 
since we don't exist in that world, if the rule is to be there is no murder, then it must be universalizable to the extent that it applies to all of man. So that is one argument for it from the state of nature to kind of add on to what you were saying is that it again, just to make sure everybody's clear, it would require a, a world or a state of nature where there are natural born tyrants or people who have an inherent moral authority to not fall under the scope of universalizability because they would count as a separate moral actor to average humans like the God Kings. Great example. They believed they had that inherent moral authority that put them above the peasant folk. So another perspective of looking at it. Um, what do you think about that? Just yeah, when, when, when Nero ordered, so Nero didn't execute many people. That's not how they did things back then. Nero would order you to kill yourself. And most people, when ordered to kill themselves, would kill themselves because the emperor of Rome told them to. And he had that rightful authority to do so, given him by the gods. Uh, that is the perfect example of um, a non-universalizable special, special pleading of moral authority to a human that is uh, as human as the rest of us. Um, this is why slavery is wrong. Because we're all human and we're all deserving of the same moral rights and rules as all the rest of us. Uh, that, that's why universalizability is, is so critical and important to moral philosophy. Yeah, without it, you could justify any number of atrocities by making any other human being a, a lesser moral agent to some degree. And we've seen that throughout history. Basically, every genocide has been based off of uh, this sort of, of reasoning of, of some in inherent moral authority on some lesser being, we'll put it that way, which is definitely not something that is demonstrable in nature, nor can be through, proven through any sort of valid and sound argument. So it's something that we, we must reject. And uh, I, th I like to think of universalizability a little bit like Hume's Law. In the sense that uh, it is something that is is tested, and if we were, so in the case of Hume's law, for example, for anybody who happened to miss any of the other episodes, it's that you can't make any sort of objective moral claim because they all have an inherent moral claim smuggled somewhere in them that makes them subjective. In the case of universalizability, uh, you know, like we talked about, all of these things must be applied universally across all people. And the reason that these two things have a, a sort of tacit relation between them is that there could be an objective morality, but it would require it to have inherently moral properties about it that are self-evidently moral. There could be potentially out there some being that breaks universalizability. A lot of people would say like a god, for example, breaks universalizability because it is an inherent moral being that has inherent moral power over us non-inherent moral beings. And uh, so this is just something important to note as far as the, the correctness of the argument. We'll put it that way. Then you get into the Euthyphro dilemma and all that stuff, and, and we can get into apologetics. If you, I, it's probably a topic for another video. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I appreciated that you tried to stitch together, you know, because we were talking about the 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 first principles, the three rules of logic. And then we went straight into moral philosophy and universalizability. And we, we just stepped smooth across the guillotine. Yeah, and uh, I, I, I think it bears um, connecting that a little bit. I mean, obviously we can't defeat the guillotine, but 
I, I want to point out that we did just step across, you know, we stepped from one side to the other with no logical argumentation in between the two. Can you explain how and why you just did that? Right. So this is a quandary in philosophy that probably has a name that I don't know of that I like to call the initial assumption, right? Or it's, it's any sort of uh, arbitrary selection that's required to make moral philosophy function. And all, every single moral philosophy, because of Hume's guillotine, and that all moralities are subjective, require at minimum one arbitrary selection, and that is... I choose to live above the state of nature. Every single moral philosophy requires that the individual participating in its, in its code will say, does so. Otherwise, there is, there is no moral philosophy. Your state of nature being you have no compulsion to do anything moral, and you can just continue you know, doing whatever you want until you are state of nature beinged out of the existence. And it's a difficult uh, so, topic. Sorry, I'll let you go. I was about to rant a little bit, but the I, I've I call it the first assumption when I talk about a equals a, um, and I call it the first assumption because what you just talked about is the second assumption uh, inherent in all moral philosophies. We have to start with a equals a, and we have to loop in the foundational uh, principles of logic and reason. Otherwise, we just were that we've melted into a puddle on the ground, like I said before. So we can take that, that as an assumption. And then the second assumption is that goal of elevating ourselves out of the state of nature of choosing to use our rational mind, as Rand would say, to interact with one another in an elevated state in a more rational way of communicating and, and associating. Um, above the state of nature. So based on that, uh, you get the second piece of the puzzle that then opens the door to moral philosophy. And without those two things, whatever you're talking about is nonsense. But it bears pointing out that both of these things are assumptions. One leads to solipsism if you deny it, which is a rat hole that you can go down, I guess, if you want. And the, the second one is just rejecting all moral philosophy if you reject it. If you choose to live in a state of nature by, by tooth and fang, as the lions do, then you have no use for anything that, we, that Christian probably talks about on this entire channel. You have no use for morality, where it's good and evil are meaningless to you. You are a, you know, a beast equal to all the other beasts and desire to treat other people uh, on that level. Um, so I, I think it's a... a it, it's the it's the rejection of morality. It's the rejection of the thing that differentiates you as a human, your capacities to reason your way up above the state of nature and to interact more in a, in a more civilized way, in a more rational way with the other humans around you. So uh, that's what I call the first and second assumption. What do you think about that uh, nomenclature? Yeah, um, so typically I think... Uh... Usually the way that I, the reason I call it the initial assumption is because most philosophies attempt to, uh, and this is a more of an observation on my point, but when most people try to sell a moral philosophy, they rarely will say, okay, now we're going to assume this, right? So they, they usually talk about like, oh, well, these things are, so therefore this, right? Like pleasure is better than pain. So we have to have you know, and I always talk about this because it's so easy to meme on, but we have to have utilitarianism, right? Because because pleasure is automatically better than pain, we just have to. Well, that is an assumption, 
you cannot demonstrate that there is some moral quality to pleasure that therefore elevates it above pain other than subjective preference, right? So in that case, that would be an example of what I would call their initial assumption. Because they don't ask even in their case, you know, should you be above the state of nature, which I do think is the true one. They just don't realize that. Um, but I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, technically speaking, you are correct. These, these laws of, these are axioms. These are self-evidently true. These are not, um, these, you know, A equals A is A equals A because A equals A. There is no prior knowledge that we derive A equals A from. So there is a, a self-evidency to them that does well, make them in that. Acceptance. Well, we derive A equals A from the prior knowledge of the consistency of the universe. I, I so I, I wouldn't say it like you just did, but I, I would, I still call it axiomatic, but um, it, you know, it is evidenced. Yes, but M not, maybe not, not by... perfectly. So not like we like past performance doesn't predict future performance. So in that way, I guess it is unevidenced. Am I wrong? Maybe I am. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. typically speaking, yeah, it, because it requires a naturalistic fallacy to say based on prior observation that we can use that to reinforce our understanding of the axiom of A equals A. Uh, the, it is inherently uh, self-evident, which means there is no deeper layer that can prove A equals A other than A equaling A. Uh, it, that is that is level zero essentially you know if we yeah. were to we'd have to dig up a negative one layer in order to find something to prove that which maybe we one day will but that day is not today at least uh and yeah so the way the way i do it when i have these low level discussions with people which happens rarely uh you know you, you have the conversation okay you know are, are you a solipsist yes or no they say yes then it's like, why are you talking to me? And you move on with your life. Um, like, and I, and, and I say that dismissively, but I am outright dismissing the person because they question if I exist and, uh, and I question if they have a brain and then we move on with our lives and, uh, and that's it. And so that's the first question. Do you, is, does A equal A for you? Because I require when I'm communicating with somebody using the physics, I, I, I have an expectation that when I vibrate my vocal cords in a certain way and move my mouth in certain shapes that I'm going to form words that have um, a, a meaning that we share between us. And I'm going to use the fundamental objective, consistent laws of the universe to communicate to you. And uh, if if we don't agree that the universe is consistent in that way, then communication becomes impossible. Meaning becomes impossible. Connection between two people <laughs> out the window. So if we don't share that assumption, I don't even talk to you because you can't even be sure I'm not, um, you know, a Muppet or something, you know, like it's a, it's pointless. So that's just a, a shit test that I, that I start with. The second one I do is when we get to moral philosophy, um, that's the one that most people don't talk about. And you mentioned this, like most moral philosophers don't start out with the uh, bald face assumption that look, this is how, this is my first assumption. Uh, my first assumption is that, you know, um, whatever brings the most utils is uh, the good. You know, they don't state it outright like that. They smuggle it in whether or not, and my, I would give most of them the benefit of the doubt that most of them don't even realize what they're doing when they do it, but they are. And um, so I lead with it. I'm like, okay, well, my assumption is this is reality and we've agreed on that. And we agree that, uh, you know, the lions will kill if they want to kill and the murderers will murder if they want to murder. 
And if we want to, if you, if we want this relationship between you and I to be elevated up out of that, well, we can start by recognizing that. And now we can work on rational ways between us to, uh, to treat each other better and to respect each other's body and property and work on agreeing on a set of moral rules, um, that we can reciprocate between us. Um, so it's like, I lead with the thing that most moral philosophies skip over and smuggle in. Oh, and just to go the other way, and, and if they say no, man, all that, you know, right and wrong and good and evil, and there are many people that do this, you know, that's just moralizing nonsense that doesn't exist. That's all spooks, man. And, uh, you know, I, you know <laughs> I, I exist in the real world. It, all they're telling me is that they prefer to be counted amongst the other beasts and treated as such, which tells me all I need to know. And I move on to, and, and I have a conversation with somebody else that is interested in using the thing that makes them unique as a human, which is their rational mind and capacities to elevate themselves out of that state of nature. So here's a question that I get all the time uh, that, well, I say all the time, I've gotten it approximately twice, but to me, that's all the time. And uh, um, the, the question is, Okay, so we've established the rules of logic, we've established the state of nature, is then, after choosing to build, or to choosing to elevate oneself above the state of nature, is to do so on a method that is based in rationality and assumption in itself. What do you think about that? I think if you start with the second assumption that I talked about and ignore the first, then you're you're you've got nothing. You've you're swinging pool noodle instead of a sword. You're 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 melted water on the ground that is not recognizing the consistency of the universe and everything else that you do. And the farther away you get from the reality, the less effective and meaningful and and um, able to pull the levers of reality around you, you're going to be so. If you're operating on a set of agreements or moral philosophies that are disconnected from the rules of reason and logic, um, you are in danger of tricking yourself into thinking you've elevated yourself out of a state of nature, which is which is another way of saying feels based might makes right nonsense. Um, you'll, you'll be tricking yourself into thinking that you've elevated yourself, but you really haven't. You're operating on, well, if I need a road built, I'm going to vote and get my politician to point guns at people and kill them if they resist to extract money from them. Cause I think a road needs to be built and roads are really important and therefore it's right. Well, that, uh, that is a philosophy, but, uh, it's not one based on the rules of reason. And so this comes back to the idea that, all ethical philosophers or philosophers who delve in the realm of ethics in any capacity are essentially looking for what is the moral truth, right? What is the, the closest thing to the moral truth perhaps we can find in a world of subjective morality. And we already did a definition of truth in this episode, right? And it's, the, you know, if you were to apply that method of thinking to a moral truth, you couldn't derive one without rationalization. You couldn't get there without using reason because at some point you will have to compare whatever you have come up with with reality. And you have to make sure that these things mesh. And if you're going to do that at one step, to not do it at another step violates consistency, which is something else that we've talked about during this. So I would go as far as to say that if you are to actually do philosophy and not be a state of nature being with extra steps, you must be rational in your moral philosophy. 
That's a good way of saying it. You're state of nature with extra steps. That's yep. most of them. That's most of the moral philosophies, unfortunately. Yeah, because hmm. they attempt to actualize a world that they want to see rather than actually finding the moral truth, as we'll call it. And uh, we have I have a video working on that. That's a whole topic into itself about philosophies of want. But uh, I think this is this is a, a great topic because it's something that I think a lot of people struggle with whenever they first like when people first uh, a very common reaction that I see. And I don't want to generalize too much, but this is a reaction that I had when I first discovered Hume's law. For me, it was like, oh. There is no objective morality, everything's subjective, everything sucks. And at this point, I already had an understanding of what the state of nature was, and my gut reaction was to say the state of nature is the only truth, it can, ever, it can only ever be the only truth, and so, you know, that's the only thing anybody can ever really consistently follow, which was a complete uh, reflex, really. It was, it was a... It was a uh, involuntary response to losing this objective morality that I really wanted to cling on to so hard, but uh, it wasn't necessary. There's no law of just like there's no law of the universe saying that not killing people is good. There is no law of the universe that says you still can't, you know, you you have to kill people or something like that. Now you have to go and be the lion and and fight tooth and nail for everything you ever wanted in your life you can always choose like we talked about and like you brought up as rational agents to be moral and then from there you just have to derive what that is using the tools of rationality yeah well said well said uh so we talked a little bit about universalizability and i think we definitely got the idea across the concept that you know there are no natural born tyrants these rules must be applied universally universalizably which is using the definition and the definition they must be applied across all people in the same way um next uh, thing i had on my list was reciprocity and i think these two things are very interlinked though they are not the same thing would you like to go ahead and give a little spiel on what reciprocity is in moral philosophy and how it relates Yeah, it is. Um, well, let me begin with the definition of the word. That's always a good place to go first. Uh, the quality or state of being reciprocal. Hey, thanks. Appreciate your dictionary. That's so useful. Mutual dependence, action or influence. Uh, I hate all of these definitions. Okay, I'm going to give it to you myself. So, um, <laughs> perfect. A, recipro a reciprocal uh, arrangement that you have with somebody is usually a tit for tat. It's and not in a negative way. It's like I'm going to give you money, and in exchange, you're going to cut my lawn every week or something like that. That is a reciprocal agreement. I'm doing something for you. Something's transferring from me to you. Something's transferring from you to me. I'm affording you, you know, respect by not punching you, and you're going to reciprocate that respect by not punching me in return. Uh, for a big part of moral philosophy in general, and a, and a big result, a big end effect of universalizability, if you're using... Let me, sit, let me start over. If your moral rule is universalizable, which means the moral rule is capable of being used at all times, in all places, between all people, on Earth, on the moon, between me and between him and, 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 and everywhere, then 
you want to find other people that can link up with you on that rule. And if both people use that moral rule that is universalizable, if they reciprocate it between themselves, then their interactions will always be good and will never be evil because it is a, a universalizable rule, which means it, it can be used all the time, everywhere, between all people, and the people that choose to reciprocate it, to link up around it, will be able to lead virtuous, you know, moral lives, will hopefully reduce harm and evil between people. Um, so reciprocation, reciprocity, is people choosing a moral rule or a moral philosophy and choosing to make it a two-way street. And this is something that goes right back to our rationality that we have uniquely that we're aware of so far as humans to make these agreements, to understand things like property and rights and um, harm and moral philosophy and moral rules and concepts like good and evil. I'm sure maybe one day we're going to find another entity that can uh, can reason on these on this level on this elevated level, but for right now, I think we're about it. And uh, so, us as humans have this special superpower of reciprocating these um, higher concepts that allow us to interact better above the state of nature, so to speak. Was that? Yeah. So the it's something interesting to think about is that you can have universalizability in a world of one. It's a it's, you know, kind of an esoteric thing to think about. But if I am to say Christian is never to steal any of Christian's things and, you know, I never do that. And this is always the way that it is. Right. You could say you could universalize in a world of one. You cannot reciprocate in a world of one. And this is where it's important in the context of a ethics perspective, because this is how we interact with other people. At the end of the day, the reason this is all important is not so that I can learn how to interact with myself and how to, you know, manage my own things. It is how to interact with other people. And reciprocity, I view it as an application of universalizability, because if someone is not to reciprocate, it means they are in violation of universalizability to some extent, right? So if we are all to agree that a universalizable rule would be not to harm someone, right? It's a very easy idea to universalize, right? If I was to go and do that and violate reciprocity with the person who I intended to engage in some moral contract or uh, obligation with, I would be in violation of that and universalizability. So while the two things are not the same, they are very closely linked, and I think it's important to understand that. And that's why I brought up universalizability first, but... So, and in a, um, I, I should have given a better example of a non-universalizable moral rule. Like, like if you tried to make um, a moral rule that says, uh, to be good, you have to provide your neighbor with uh, tea and crumpets uh, every morning. Um, this is not universalizable for many reasons. One, not everyone has resources to buy and provide tea and crumpets every day to their neighbors. Uh, what constitutes a neighbor? Um, what if you don't have any neighbors? Can you? Are, is it impossible for you to be good? What about it? What you, if you live in the middle of nowhere? Can you not be good? This, this, so there's a lots of uh, there's lots of reasons why um, rules like that that are not universalizable. What's another example? Um, the the police have the right to initiate force, and you do not. 
Well, that is a, a non-universalizable rule. Like, what is different about their humanity first principles from A equals A that, that gives them the right to hurt people? Um, and if you took those same actions, you would be a criminal. You would be the bad guy that would that the police would come and attack like the police would come and attack you for taking the exact same actions that the police frequently daily take. Um, these are the kind of, um, and that's all victimless crime laws, by the way, uh, you know, small side note that, you know, doesn't affect your entire life. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so those are some examples of non-universalizable rules and why they're problems. Um, and then reciprocation is just, People doing that thing that we as humans currently are uniquely capable of. Which is to think about this stuff and to decide to control ourselves according to these highfalutin concepts called good and evil and moral philosophies. Right. And so I, I want to do later on in this season, there's going to be an entire episode on rights because it deserves it. But I do want to mention that this notion of universalizability and reciprocity is from what I have found, and perhaps correct me if you disagree, is the most consistent and applicable way of determining what a quote unquote right would be. And this is not a natural right in the sense that like we talked about in the first episode where natural rights are something that are born out of nature or however you have these rights through the we'll say contract of reciprocity with other beings right other rational agents who have demonstrated a willingness to be above the state of nature would you say that's a fair representation yeah and it's just it's so um it's such a simple idea that no one talks about that I just feel like reiterating constantly uh, why this stuff is important to a, when comparing moral philosophies, because that's what we're kind of doing here. If, if, if one person comes up with a moral rule that isn't universalizable and, and you um, examine it, you're comparing moral rules. And one of the comparison points should be universalizability. And all I can do is just continually come up with more examples. Like, like if we're playing Monopoly, the, the, the board game Monopoly, and, you know, we have a moral rule that says it is immoral to cheat in board games. And, um, and then you catch me, you know, slipping money out of the bank into my side of the board. And, uh, and I say, oh, well, yeah, the, the rule is that um, everybody not named Patrick doesn't need to cheat, but, you know, I'm allowed to take money from the till when I need it so that I don't lose. Um, you can see how that break in universalizability, uh, that break in re reciprocity makes that special moral rule. Patrick gets to take money out of the bank and when playing Monopoly, how that denigrates, how it lowers my moral rule from the one that works on everybody at all times playing all board games. It's like the, the, the more consistently we can come up with a rule that covers the widest breadth of human interaction and activity, the, the more useful and stronger that rule should be considered. So if we're comparing them, this is this goes like to. I won't get into it, but just as another example, when you're comparing property norms between like a communist one that has all these different slices of types of property, personal property, private property public property, communal property versus, um, you know, a simple neo-Lockean first use rule that just says, look, 
the person that gets there first and uses something has the highest claim to it. Well, we're comparing these systems based on what makes them good systems. And in the case of property, it's reducing conflict. In the case of moral philosophy, it's in um, increasing universalizability, reducing arbitrariness. Um, and uh, yeah, so hopefully that was a useful rant. No, I think it was. I think one of the places that a lot of people get hung up is on how all these ideas relate to one another, which is why I want to spend so much time talking about you know, sitting on the topic of reciprocity, because we could have just given the definition and moved on to something else and you know, discuss away. But I think it is critical to understand that every, everything is interlinked. And this is, in a way, an example of how non-arbitrary it is to begin with. Because if there was no relation from A to B to C, you wouldn't need A or B to understand why C is there. C is there because C is there. But we have reciprocity because of universalizability. We have universalizability because of the rules of logic. The state of nature exists because of the rules of logic. And, you know, these these things all come back and link to one another. And it's like a tree is the best way of thinking about it, where you have your trunk, which is first principles, and it branches outward. And and But in this case, the tree, even the branches connect in certain places and they, they come back into the body. So... Maybe almost like a ball of vines is a better way of thinking about it because of how interconnected these things are. Yeah, and another part of uh, a universalizability, I know that's a mouthful, but I, that's the only word I've heard to really describe it well, universalizability, which just means the capacity for a moral rule to be usable in all times, places, between all people is that it is the antidote to arbitrariness which is a problem that is that it that is found back down in the rules of logic and um attempting to find consistency and validity in our reasoning um is now a good time to move on into arbitrariness as a problem and why it is a problem that's exactly what i was about to transition us into so go ahead and take it away Oh, well, check out that boss level segue. Exactly. So yeah. um, it's like you're a professional or something. <laughs> it's like I've done this thousands of times. Uh, so but when I call it out, it kind of undermines it. So uh, <laughs> that's it's um, meta. I, I recently, <laughs> it's meta. Yeah, yeah. I recently had a, a debate um, uh, on abortion with someone and I was not prepared for their objection to my argument. Um, let me give you, let me give it to you. Oh, so, I, I don't know if you saw this debate, but, um, it was basically like, I was arguing that all abortion is murder. Um, and I'm not going to get into abortion fully. We can have that talk later if you want, but the <laughs> position I was arguing is that all abortion is murder. And he says, well, no, not all abortion is murder. You know, if it, if the fetus is young enough, then it's not murder. And if it's old enough, it is murder. And I was like, well, where's the line? And uh, his particular line was uh, the the um, mental physiological complexity of a fish. So if it's if it has achieved a state that is more complex than that of a fish physiologically, mentally, um, uh, neurologically, that's the word I was looking for. Neurologic complexity greater than that of a fish, then it uh, it is immoral to kill. And if it is uh, under that of a fish, then it is a, an amoral, that is to say, non-moral action, uh, which means it's perfectly fine to kill. 
And I said, well, uh, why a fish? And he said, <laughs> well, that seems, uh, that seems like a good line in the sand to, to hold to me. And I said, well, that's arbitrary. You see that, right? And he, uh, I'm compressing a long conversation and not trying to straw man him, but he basically said, um, what's wrong with it being arbitrary? And he was thoroughly confused by me saying, hey, that's arbitrary. You realize that's a problem for your argument, right? And uh, he didn't see that that was a problem for his argument. And I had never had to defend arbitrariness before as something that you don't want in your argument. So I was kind of at a loss in the discussion, in the debate. Like I, I didn't, I, I wasn't prepared to explain the basic <laughs> rules of reason <laughs> on the level of arbitrariness. So since then, I've tried to do a little bit of homework to be able to articulate why um, a, a position that is arbitrary uh, is a problem for, for your argument. Um, and the best way I've found to describe it is that an arbitrary position is one that isn't backed by an argument. That's, that, that's basically what it was in this uh, abortion situation. The fish is his line. Why? Well, it feels good. I mean, it seems good to him, which is another way of saying, I don't have a reason. I don't have um, an argument that is both valid, consistent, sound, and backed by evidence uh, for, for this position. That is what arbitrary is. It is the absence of reasoning. It is, you have arrived at a position through other means, aside from logic and reason and evidence. Um, another, maybe a better name for arbitrary positions is a special pleading fallacy. This is um, when... Um, like if you if you cite if you're if you're making a proof a logical proof for an argument for a, a moral rule let's say and then you say oh but, 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 but the police they get a spe and I keep using police because it's the perfect example for this channel I think but you know oh but, but the police you know they're different they get to use force when the rest of us humans don't get to uh, well sorry why why do police get to use force when I don't uh, and why is it good for them to do something that it's evil for me to do. And they said, well, I mean, you know, we, we, and then they start using collectivizing language and they say a bunch of words to, to attempt to justify why police have special authority. Um, but all of those arguments aren't actually are sound or valid arguments. And so it ends up just being a case of special pleading. Well, it, yeah, if we don't have the police, then how will we be safe? You know, I think we need the police to be safe. Okay, well, you're just making a special pleading. Okay, you're just putting an arbitrary rule on the books. Be not backed by reason, evidence, logic, uh, or, you know, um, uh, uh, sound reasoning, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and, and you're just inserting uh, a random rule. So the same problem can, can uh, moral philosophies, moral rules can suffer from the same problems of arbitrariness or uh, otherwise known as special pleadings, where it's just you think you feel it is wrong for someone to do a thing. Uh, therefore, it is wrong. Well, what you've just done is not an argument. You've just drawn an arbitrary rule up in your own head. Isn't uh, based on these first principles of logic that we're talking about here, uh, which robs them of um, robs them of their conformity to reality. And if you're if you're if you're espousing positions that don't conform to reality, 
it's like you're in a video game and you're trying to convince me to get in the video game with you. It's like you're not you're not here in the real world with me, man. Like you're just making stuff up. Um, what's a good example? I mean, as a libertarian, we're constantly running into feels based arguments for everything. Uh, one would the recent hot topic one is child labor, right? So yeah. like that was the one that blew up on Twitter. Um, and people are like, well, child labor is wrong. Well, you know, that's your, yeah, that's your opinion, man. Yeah. <laughs> that's the name for the, that, yeah. that's, that's the counter argument for arbitrary arguments. That's just your opinion, man. So yeah, that, how did I do? That was the first time I've ever tried to actually uh, back up the problem with arbitrary arguments. Yeah, I think it's a good way of looking at it. Usually I just, so before I get there, actually, I want to take the turn to say in comparing of other moral philosophies, there isn't going to be a single moral philosophy out there that's like, oh, arbitrariness? We love that. Like, that's what we do here. We are the arbitrary philosophy, yeah. you know? No. Like, n nobody's going to advertise. Not even the Rawlsians. No. Consequentialists. Consequentialists oh, will. Oh, yeah. Okay. You, you, you're right. You're right. You're right. But let's, let's take a look at my least favorite moral philosopher, Rawls, right? You know, he, he's not out there saying, oh, yeah, everything's arbitrary. We just got to be arbitrary about all of our arbitrariness and blah. What they do is they build a system based on arbitrary principles and then say, OK, no more arbitrariness. It's all this is it. it it's here now. This is this is these are the rules. Even though everything that built them was arbitrary, nothing additionally arbitrary can be added. Right. So let's say for a Rawlsian. Right. They think that, uh, you know, wealth, de wealth redistribution to those with fewer social primary goods is good because it is good. Right. That's a it's a claim that Rawlsianism makes. So if, if I were to come in and say, like, OK, well, I want to do, you know, an expansion on the moral philosophy of Rawlsianism and say that uh, all Coke logos must be blue and that is good. And they're like, well, that's entirely arbitrary and has no reason for it to exist. And I'm like, well, neither does any of the rest of the things that you guys talk about. Uh, and this is all in an effort to demonstrate that while moral philosophies may say they are not arbitrary and that they are based on reasonings, their fundamental assumptions are usually so arbitrary that whatever reasoning they try to deduce from those arbitrary assumptions are uh just vacuous aphema essentially and then they don't like people coming in and trying to add more arbitrariness on top even though there's nothing stopping them from doing so really and that all leads into one more thing that i wanted to say which is usually what i go to which is that once you have introduced arbitrariness into the system of logic right so we've left the predicate assumptions and we are now in the territory of let's make decisions off of these predicates right once you start getting arbitrary from that point on, you can prove anything. You can make anything you want at that point. You just have to be as arbitrary as you want, right? So fish brains, okay? Let's say that that's, that's how arbitrary we want to be, right? If, if you introduce fish brains and you say that fish brains are sufficient for, you know, anything less than that is sufficient for abortion or whatever, then somebody could come in and say, okay, well, I think horse brains and I think ant brains and I think people brains or whatever, whatever way you want to look at it are all equally true because they have no logical basis for their end. They all of these things could be as equally correct because none of them are correct. So <laughs> that's usually how I look. Because there's it. no argument. There's no argument being made, no position being held. 
nothing being defended other than basically opinion and feels like that's what it boils down to. And that's a, that's a problem. Uh, if you want to act in accordance with reality and the consistency of the universe. Yeah. And, and there's nothing, if you want to do something to yourself that is arbitrary, that's entirely fine. Say you want to get a tattoo for no reason, that's fine. But the, to then try to make a moral rule that everyone must get a Hello Kitty tattoo on their left arm or something is you. It does. There is no argument that you could possibly make to justify that in a manner that would, let's just say, fly for lack of a better word at the moment. And this, again, all comes back to the beginning, because as we've talked about, all of these things building off of one another, it's like, how many steps and what arbitrary selections would you do if you were to try to make some sort of rationalization for it? What arbitrary inserts would you have to do to get from the state of nature exists to everyone must have a Hello Kitty tattooed on their left arm? Because you're going to have to make quite a few arbitrary selections in between there, or none at all. It's equally as valid. So, which if you want to be arbitrary, pick whichever you'd like. You know, they're they're both as uh, rigorous and uh, of of worth. So, just make the arbitrary selection. Don't even build, bother building the argument, the fake argument. So, <laughs> and and another way that like relates back to the state of nature for moral philosophy is that this it is in many ways the state of nature it is to say i can use violence to get what i want and you can't i will resist you attempting to use violence to get what you want uh, if it conflicts with my goals well wait what makes you so special that you're the only one that you will allow to use violence to get what you want patrick well you know it's me it's just how i want it to be okay well this is an arbitrary rule where we have left the realm of higher reasoning uh, species and we're back down in the state of nature yeah, the arbitrary selection in that case would be in stating that your continued existence is more important than their continued existence or that and and there there is no there is no proof per se in reality that I could say, oh, well, I deserve to exist more than Patrick does. So therefore this there that is an arbitrary selection. You decided that for yourself. That is your opinion, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, while I still search for that, uh, you know, Patrick is God particle, I'm still bereft. Um, I, I don't even, honestly, I don't even want you to tell me if you find it. Just pretend you didn't, okay? Because <laughs> that would really change our, our dynamic, I think, if, if that were to be the case. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, so uh, what, uh, is there anything else on the, on the list? That was a really good talk through of that, I think. Yeah, I'm impressed uh, by. What's that? I was just saying I'm impressed by by us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'm quite impressed with us too. <laughs> um, ha ha ha! <laughs> I wanted to make uh, this was uh, uh, also going to go with solipsism at the end here, where I was going to be like, "Oh, hey, these oh, yeah. things exist." Blah blah blah. I wanted to make a, a quick note to, while they are not technically solipsists, they might as well be, which what I will call the incompleteness-ists, which will pick esoteric ideas in mathematics and try to apply them to all of logic. So in this case, it would be, oh, well, Gödel's incompleteness theorem shows that set theory, you know, isn't complete, and so therefore logic, blah, blah, blah. 
And this comes with what I will politely call just a, an unqualified ignorance on how these things relate to logic. Uh, math, uh, math is applied logic. That is entirely true. But not everything that applies to math applies to applied logic in, in a moral sense or in an ethical sense. So in the case of like Girdle's incompleteness theorem, I don't know where this talking point originally came from what influencer said it first to like oh hey everybody who likes logic go out and talk about this one thing but it's, it is specifically in relation to a portion of mathematics known as set theory and it specifically states that just because how about this instead of reiterating what girdle's incompleteness theorem is i'll put it this way the only it's thing like like five people on the planet know what you're talking about right now you yeah. might want to use the you might want to use the theoretical versus actual infinite because I think more people will get that. Um, but in but what, don't okay, let me no, knock I, your. I, I, I was about to I, say. I don't want to derail you. I I don't know if okay. I'm just. I, I kind of want to hear what you were going on about there, but the um, basically it, w the important thing to note about this for any of you who might be typing on the keyboards right now, and the reason I bring it up is because I've seen it. In a comment and so i feel like it deserves mentioning but this is a is a very specific part of mathematics that has a very specific relation that only says there are some things that exist that we cannot necessarily prove that exist right and that's that's all that it states so it is not some gigantic takedown of logic it simply is stating that there are some things which are axiomatic which like we talked about with a equals a a equals a is self-evident there is no we cannot derive a equals a as far as we know which this incompleteness theorem kind of addresses this a little bit there there is nothing to by which to derive a equals a except for from itself because anything else is is either a logical fallacy or well it is a logical fallacy like the naturalist naturalistic fallacy but it does not make anything that we have talked about today invalid so i just wanted to get that out there this was also going to be when i went to did the same thing with solipsism but i wanted to hear what you were talking about with the theoretical versus actual infinite i don't know yeah i i think i'm gonna call i think i'm naming a new fallacy okay <laughs> i'm gonna call it the pat the passio fallacy um it's when you take a language that was created to describe reality and then you use that, the way that language was created, to fold it back on itself and infer things about reality from that language. So uh, you sort of reverse the causality of the language. So what's a good example? Um, like there's a word in, hold on, I'm going to pull up a good example of this because it's going to be the perfect analogy for math. One second. Hope you don't mind me actually looking this up. No, you're fine. We've got plenty of time. If I was more responsible, I would have had a definition of Girdle's incompleteness theorem, but it also would have been like four paragraphs long. So it's probably a good thing I didn't do that. All right. Almost got it. One more second. No problem. I'll take it out in editing. The people of the podcast will never even know what happened. They'll think it was just one long... They'll be like, wow, he knew this off the top of his head. <laughs> okay, so there's a Latin word called liber, 
or Liber, depending on how you pronounce it, uh, that means, that has multiple meanings. One is, uh, it means liberty, and the other meaning is a library. And so uh, someone told me, with a straight face, that uh, that's why we go to the library to be free. So what we've done here is we've taken a language that was used to communicate about reality and describe reality. And then we flipped that backwards. And now we're using a quirk of language and definitions to attempt to infer or create an argument, a logical proof. You know, the, the definition of Lieber is freedom, is liberty, and the definition of Lieber is library. Therefore, there must be some connection between libraries and liberty. Uh, so we're we're going the other direction. We're inferring something about reality from uh, from the language that was used to initially describe reality. So the same thing happens with mathematics. Mathematics is a language, just like the one that we're using to communicate with each other right now, um, that was created based on and to describe reality. And to take that language, flip it on its end, and then attempt to use the language to um, make claims about reality that go beyond hypotheses that you want to test to see if you can predict things, because that's what math and science does, right? They use, they develop hypotheses, and they express those hypotheses often in, in the language of mathematics, and then they test them to see if reality matches up with their mathematical expressions. But what they don't do is decide that something exists in reality because the math says so. And an example of that is the concept of infinity. Infinities exist in set theory and in other forms of mathematics, and people kind of get the idea of what infinity means. It means infinite. It means things go on forever. It means infinitely divisible, like time. You can divide time into smaller and smaller slices, infinitely small. Um, you can have that as a concept in your mind. Concepts don't exist. That's part of the break between the language of mathematics and the reality of reality is that these concepts that we can think about, things like infinity, they can exist in mathematics and we can work with them and use them and massage them in our brains in the realm and within the language of mathematics. But actual infinite, infinites, actual infinities have not been shown ever in any way to actually exist in reality. Nothing has ever been shown to be actually infinite in reality. Uh, in fact, some people hold that it's impossible for reality to contain an infinite. And so we have a break in the we have a break in the connection between the language of mathematics and the reality of reality. And um, and it's OK to use an imperfect language to communicate things. That's what we do with English. It's <laughs> vastly imperfect. <laughs> um, math is also imperfect around the edges. And it's still, it's okay, it's the best we got. It's okay to use it, but you got to be careful not to invert the causality of the two things. Math was created to describe reality, not to determine and create reality. And that's what a lot of people do. And I think that's kind of what you were talking about. Yeah, that's Correct actually, me wrong. no, that's a really good, um, that's a really good way of looking at it because it's attempting to use math to determine if there can exist things that math couldn't demonstrate, right? And like you were talking about, Math is a tool to examine reality in a sense. It is is almost to be implemented on reality. If reality is the canvas, math is the paint or something to that effect. 
And this, just because there is, let's say, an incompleteness in set theory, which as far as we know, there is, it has been demonstrated using the rules of math, it changes nothing about the foundational logic that we're talking about today. Uh, you could make, again, like we talked about in the beginning, an appeal to the unknowable that says, we don't know 100% of everything, so everything we talk about today could be wrong, which is a possibility, but that requires some sort of burden of proof in itself, if, if you were to ask me. But there is a, and, and that necessarily isn't, uh, now that I've said that out loud, isn't <laughs> technically correct. But I think you can understand what I'm trying to get across. To bring it full circle, and this is perfect. It brings it right back to the very beginning of our conversation, A equals A. If you use math to find a problem with reality, and the math shows that there's a problem with reality, a contradiction in reality, A doesn't equal A in set theory. The problem isn't reality. <laughs> the problem is language you're using to describe reality. Otherwise, you're rejecting A equals A, which is the foundation of mathematics. So you can't use math to disprove math without rejecting math. How about that? Yeah, exactly. How about that for a sticker? <laughs> it, it's just showing that there is an issue somewhere with set theory that would keep it from being able to explain literally everything, which I don't think is as big of a problem as people make it out to be. But again... You know, the you must know and if it's a problem, yeah. it's a problem with set theory, not reality. That's that yeah. was my point. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The reality is, you know, reality is there. There is no de debating that if you've accepted that, like we talked about in the beginning with the solipsists, if reality is, then uh, it is the system that has the issue, not reality. So. We've gotten that out of the way. I knew that was going to be at least a little messy because talking about all these esoteric things sometimes and giving them their their airtime can be quite burdensome. But is it weird was, that I really like it? Um, honestly, <laughs> <I have fun. laughs> there there are areas that I haven't explored as much, almost on a, a tacit dismissal. So it's topics that I feel like. I should have better answers to than I do, but I think also at the same time, I'm looking for solutions to problems that are not to the magnitude that I think they are. <laughs> um, mm. And so like what I want is some like knockdown drag out, like here's why your solipsism is stupid, but that's, it's not that clean. That is just a function of epistemology is that, something that I've learned through studying epistemology is that there's nothing clean about epistemology. Like once you start getting into the question of what is knowledge, it just, it becomes very abstract and esoteric and there's no other way to approach it than with abstraction. Um, I wish I could just point to a tree and be like, look, solipsism is dead, but that's just not, it's not that easy to convey. So, but that's a personal thing with me. And I think having these conversations helps me with that. Um, like this is the first time I've addressed incompleteness theorem in front of a camera. I've heard about it. I've read about it. I've studied about it, but I've never spoken about it before. So this was just another exercise in that, but. Cool. Well, I've had a great time in this conversation. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was an absolute blast. Um, we'll definitely have to have you back again here in the future. Uh, next episode, 
off the top, I'm I'm actually I'm gonna hold off on announcing which one because I haven't decided exactly which one is gonna be next. But either way, it's gonna be a juicy one. I've just gotta decide in my head how I want it to go. So that is all I have for you guys. Make sure to go and check out Patrick's stuff on uh, Float at Not Governor and on Odyssey on uh, Disenthrall and Anarchast and as well as. I think you have float pages for both of those as well. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Disenthrall.me slash platforms will give you all the links. Exactly. So disenthrall.me slash platforms. Go check out all of his stuff. Follow, subscribe. If you are watching this and you haven't already, you're, you're missing out. I, I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, but that is all I have for you guys. So this is the part where I say make sure you guys take it easy.